Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Gregory Harms. His last name is spelled H-A-R-M-S. Just published a book, November 2022. Title of the book is No Politics, No Religion, How America's Code of Conduct Conceals Our Unity. And he is an independent scholar, long specializing in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. He lectures, keeps a blog, and punish, publishes articles on Counterpunch, Truthout, Mondo Weiss, and Juan Cole's blog, Informed Comment. He has traveled throughout Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, and has been interviewed on BBC Radio. His first book, The Palestine-Israel Conflict, A Basic Introduction, is a brief and general summary of the conflict written for students and the general reader. The first edition in 2005 was selected as a choice, outstanding academic title. His second book, Straight Power Concepts in the Middle East, published 2010, is an examination of U.S. regional policy in the context of U.S.-Israeli relations. And then his third is It's Not About Religion, 2012, published by actor and activist Viggo Mortensen's Percival Press, and it addresses the common question of religion concerning Middle Eastern instability. And that book was also selected as a finalist for adult nonfiction in 2013, by the Chicago Midland Author Society. Mr. Harms has taught philosophy for the last decade, and his areas of specialization are moral and political philosophy. But again, we're going to talk about this book just published, 2022, November, No Politics, No Religion, How America's Code of Conduct Conceals Our Unity. So, Gregory Harms, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, William. So, you have kind of a long background. Can you kind of talk about your interest, how you got... uh, interested in the Palestinian or Palestine-Israeli conflict, and then what led you up to publishing this book, No Politics, No Religion? Um, I think what got me started was I got I got frustrated with not knowing anything about the Middle East. Uh, I got, I was kind of angry about my own ignorance. So I started I mean, I'd heard, you know, people say these, these people say this and that about the Middle East, about it's about religion and, you know, people, you'll never figure it out. And these people have been fighting for, you know, since time immemorial. And I just, none of that felt right, but I didn't know. I mean, I, I was completely uneducated on the subject. So I started burying myself in books on Middle Eastern history and Middle Eastern politics and I very quickly discovered that I was right. None of that's correct. And it's not a complicated, it's not that complicated. It really isn't. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. It's complex, but it's not complicated. Uh, and so I started working on the first book, The Palestine-Israel Conflict, A Basic Introduction. Uh, I just wanted to distill you know, basically everything I've been reading into a short, manageable uh, summary of the conflict. And that is kind of how the first book came about. Um, And so I just kept on, I kept on trucking, as they say. Um, And then the second book is, the second book's probably me at my most scholarly, I guess. Uh, it's about U.S. foreign policy and the history of U.S.-Israeli relations. And then the third book, 
Uh, it's not about religion, which Viggo Mortensen published. Um, I just hit the question. I got I got asked a lot at that time about the issue of religion, about the issue of Islam, in the role it allegedly plays in Middle Eastern instability. And so I thought, I need to address that specifically. I mean, I can unpack all this history, but people are still wondering, is Islam part of the problem, you know? So I thought, I need to do a book on that. So that's where the third book came from. <laughs> it was just a very simple addressing of a very particular question. And the book is short. I made I made every effort to make it short. Um, you could call it a really long essay, I guess. It did win an award. Um, uh, but there was some controversy <laughs> because some members of that particular author organization said, well, that's not a book. It's too short, you know. <laughs> and I, people told me this, they got back to me and I like, they were, I think they were afraid I was going to be offended. <laughs> I said, I, I don't take offense at that. It is a short book. I mean, if they don't, if people don't want to call it a book, that's fine. I don't take it personally. I worked very hard to make it short. You know, there's kind of a that's oftentimes more challenging than, than writing a long book, actually. I think you're right, William. I think I've, I've said it for years. Writers write too much. <laughs> and um yeah i just i there's a misconception that you know uh the longer the book the smarter the author true you know you you, you see like henry kissinger's memoirs from his work in government and these are enormous books and i have to look at those books with a bit of suspicion I'm like he made those books. He made those books 900 pages on purpose. Probably, <laughs> you know? but that's Henry Kissinger. So I mean, yeah, I I did, I did it. It sounds counterintuitive, but I worked really hard to make that book short. You know, the third book, and then the fourth book uh, is about this code of conduct we're bombarded with about how we shouldn't talk about politics and we shouldn't talk about religion. You know, we've, many of us, most of us have heard this. And I just, that didn't, that has never sit well with me. Um, I think that's dangerous, quite frankly. Uh, a, a society that doesn't, you know, citizens you know, not talking to one another that's a dangerous thing and there's historical precedent for societies not talking to one another and we know the results and they're not good they're not good um so i just i wanted to talk about that i wanted to talk about that code of conduct and why specifically I think it's dangerous. Right, and that code of conduct is basically people are afraid of ruffling people's feathers or saying something offensive or getting canceled, right? 
So there's a yeah, lot of concern. That, 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 that's that's a big part of it. Um, I my argument in the book, my position is, if these topics, politics specifically, but religion as well, um, if they're handled well, if they're handled rationally and constructively, uh, they can lead to greater agreement. We shouldn't be arguing about, you know, these bickering matches take place at the dinner table or at the Thanksgiving table, you know, families dread getting together because uncle so-and-so is going to go on a tirade or something. We, that, that, that's not handling it well. That's handling, that's handling it badly. You know, as as a, as a colleague of mine put it, you you need to you need to hold the chainsaw by the handle. You know, I mean, you got to handle this stuff constructively, and then it can lead to greater agreement because Americans, it's not a it, the nation's not divided. I mean, we're told that constantly. You know, Americans can't even agree on you know what color the sky is or something like this. I mean, we just, you know, they can't even agree on what two plus two is. Um, that's not, that's not even close to correct. Americans are very much to a pretty healthy majoritarian degree in a, in agreement. So let's start the conversation there. Let's start the conversation with where we agree you know, uncle so-and-so and uncle so-and-so, they start the conversation with where they disagree, which is not a helpful way to proceed. You know, I mean, if, if, if you've already made your mind up, you know, if I watch Fox and you watch CNN and I decide right out of the gate that you're wrong, just by virtue of watching a news program that I don't like, if, if that's the point of departure, that cannot lead to a, a civilized discourse. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's not, that just, that just. And you, you show that kind of commonality in the chapter on polling, right? So the polling proves that people on, on many topics are over 60% in agreement at least, right? Uh, yeah, to about to to commonly to the degree of about two thirds. Yeah, I, people who know me know that I I never shut up about public opinion polls. I mean, that's really where we should start. And we know what Americans want. We know what Americans don't want. I mean, we know everything. And it sounds sinister, but it's not. This is just public opinion research. You know, there's a very long list of entities that conduct public opinion research. Uh, universities do it, uh, news organizations do it, there are private companies that that's all they do, you know, think tanks, research groups, whatever. I mean, the, the list is a mile long. And a lot of times they'll team up, you know, two universities will go in and research a particular thing. And, you know, according to a, you know, university of wherever, and, you know, two universities will look into... I mean, it could be anything, William. It could be like, you know, what kind of toothpaste Americans right. prefer. I mean, it could be anything. So we, so just by that, by that fact, we know everything. What kind of cars Americans like to drive, you know, where they like to go on vacation, all this kind of stuff. So 
of course we know everything down to the detail what Americans want and prefer in politics, you know. And I've talked to students and just people in casual discourse, you know, and they automatically, there's an automatic suspicion. Can we trust that data? Can we trust those numbers? I'm like, well, the centers of power seem to be okay with it. I mean, if Congress and the Fortune 500 think those numbers are solid, they're probably solid. <laughs> right. I wouldn't be worried about, you know, I mean, I'm not a pollster, so I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't write algorithms, you know, but I mean, I use a smartphone every day, but I couldn't tell you how it works. Um, but, so, yeah, these numbers are, are relied upon by the centers of power, by state power and by private power. I mean, if, if ExxonMobil and Google and whatnot, if, if they put stock in those figures, those figures are probably solid. And we know this polling data has been going on for now generations. We know what Americans want, not just today, but we have a picture of, you know, multiple generations. And the, the data, the information produced in these polls is redundant. That is to say, we tend to get the same numbers again and again and again. And in this, these numbers are stable. They're, you don't see a lot of fluctuation. I mean, it, it, if something's like hot in the news, like, you know, gun, like the numbers regarding gun control can kind of bounce around a little. You know, if there's recently, a, you know, a school shooting or something like this and it's in the news a lot, that will have an effect with the numbers but other than that these numbers these this data is pretty stable you don't see a lot of fluctuation right so we know like the the rasmus and zogby all these big things there's so much importance yeah, yeah right financial things are based upon these polls finance and politics where people put money these polls oh, have God. to be reliable so they know all this stuff is legitimate it's just why isn't it? Why is there a difference in the messaging that people are getting that everybody is, you know, uh, opposed to each other? 45, 55, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, say what you want about Wall Street, and there's plenty, <laughs> but right. they're not out to lunch. You know, yeah, you're right. They take those numbers very seriously. And so I'm, I'm focusing on a particular set of data. I'm looking at, I mean, I started looking at this when I did the third book. I, I just buried myself in public opinion polling. And it's not hard to find. Most of it's publicly available. Um, some of it, I mean, some of these groups, some of these private companies, you need to have a subscription to get the data. But the vast majority of it, you can just find the stuff online. The New York Times publishes this stuff on a regular basis so on one art so in one article we're told the nation's divided 
right? And then you go two columns over and the New York Times is saying, well, 65% of Americans agree on... I'm like, did they read their own newspaper? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure the journalists at the New York Times have access to the New York Times. I would think so. I You, you would think. That's, that's a safe bet. So... But you see it all the time. You know, Americans are divided. And then, yeah, like I said, two columns over, like 65% of Americans agree that, you know, this is not good or they want more spending on this or less spending on that, you know. So it's it's kind of, I don't know, comical, but you kind of end up, you know, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Right, right. And you're kind of suspect of these terms liberal and conservative, right? You've got some... I well, I don't personally have much use for them. I mean, we I talk about we talk about those terms in class with my students. You know, um, I that's one of the first things I ask them when we we do a segment called politics and power. And the first, it's one of the first things I ask the students: Who here can tell me what liberalism is? Like, tell me specifically, what does that word mean? And 100% of the time, I hear crickets. They don't know. I'm not saying the students are dumb. It's just no, no one's ever told them what those words mean. But they know those words. They use them all the time. You know, oh, I, I consider myself more liberal. I consider myself more conservative. But they don't know what those words mean. Interesting. They don't. But they don't. They're and used I, as labels, though, right? I think, part of I think this generalizes to the to the population. I suspect the people I'm in line with at the grocery store, I, I suspect they don't know it either. I suspect they have not, this sounds kind of elitist and pompous, but I suspect they have not read John Locke's Second Treatise of Government. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I, I, do I do apologize if that sounds elitist. <laughs> If that, well, sounds, if that sounds stuffy, but they may uh, not have even heard of it. I would assume ninety nine percent have not even heard of it. They may have heard of Locke, but but they might have heard of John Locke. Yeah, they they might know that name, but I mean, you've either read that book or you have not. And if you have not, then you do not know what's in that book. I mean, that's the it's basically the founding document of political classical liberalism. You know, so I explain these terms. So to cut the story short, I explain these terms to my students and they know at, by the time we're done what those words mean. But I tell them, I'm, I, I, I'm very clear about this. I'm like, you don't have to use those words. You don't. You can just articulate your political wants and what you don't want and whatever you can just use your own vocabulary you don't need to use the vocabulary of your uncles you don't you don't need to use those words i mean they're practically i mean i wouldn't say they're meaningless but they're pretty close i mean those are political philosophy terms and they if you go back to the 18th century, yes, I mean, <laughs> that's, those words have a meaning, and they have a meaning in the context of political philosophy. But for the for the 
for the public discourse, for, 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 for you and me having a conversation about politics, we don't need to use those words. No. I can just tell you, well, I like, you know, I like so-and-so. I don't like so-and-so. I think we should spend more money on such and such. I think we should have universal health care. We can have that conversation and never once use the words liberal or conservative. They're just not helpful. I agree. Totally agree. Does that that answer? Absolutely. I mean, I think that in kind of my thinking as well, more recently, these terms just don't get it. They don't get you anymore. They don't get into unless you're really going into, you know, moral moral philosophy. I think maybe that would be more yeah. meaningful, but not just on kind of standard issues, day to day issues, governmental issues in the U.S. I mean, but shouldn't yeah, frame yeah. our conversations. Right. You go, to, you go down. I mean, you, but you start the book with your kind of the moral philosophy that's led to today, right? These philosophers that people rely on, Hobbes. Hume, Adam Smith, and also like how they're mischaracterized or misunderstood or not accurately uh, a lot of them assessed. are yeah, yeah, it's I wanted to sort of lay a groundwork or a foundation in the book um, I use enlightenment, I most of those discussions are about enlightenment. Hobbes is earlier, but um, if you're talking about like Rousseau, Adam Smith, David Hume, you know, those are enlightenment thinkers. Um, I wanted to I wanted to lay a foundation in the book, and I became fascinated just by teaching ethics, by teaching moral philosophy. I became quite fascinated with how these philosophers redrew what it means to be human in the 1700s. And they completely flipped the script, so to speak. Um, They, a lot of it was a challenge to it was a reaction to Hobbes because everyone paints Hobbes as, you know, this <laughs> like he's kind of a negative, right? He was a uh, very critical of human nature, supposedly as, the, as that's the kind of topical understanding we all got in high school with the famous one line quote that everybody's heard, right? Yeah, he's like he, Hobbes has become this like prophet of doom. <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, he, he's, he's, he, like, Hobbes says we're all just evil, and, you know, if you put Gregory and William in a room, they'll tear one another apart, they're, you know, it's, it's, it, it gets like that, you know, um, but that's not what Hobbes is saying, so I wanted to do a bit of a corrective on Hobbes, and Adam Smith, there's another one. Um, yeah, you mentioned the quotes. You see the same quotes over and over and over again. And when we, when professors and teachers and whoever, uh, when they drill those quotes into people, and historians, I see them, I see these quotes in books all the time. 
If I see them, I've, in seen, Hobbs, I, I've seen in all my like uh, readings, I have had to have seen that Hobbes quote. I'm all being honest a hundred times. Oh, he's yeah, at, at, at least a hundred times at the low end, at the low end a hundred <laughs> times. Yeah, the nasty brutish and short. If I right. see his name, if I see his name, I'm like, here it comes. Yeah, it's so true. Here it here it's inevitable. Here comes the quote. <laughs> you know, and 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 the, if we if we rely exclusively on those quotes, which many writers do. Uh, we don't get a real clear picture as to what Hobbes is actually saying. So, right, it's like a it's like a caricature of their philosophy. I think. Would yeah, be the it's right not. Word. It's you, yeah, you get this warped picture. It's like turning Adam Smith into this capitalist, laissez-faire, free market prophet. He wasn't. He wasn't, but, but when you take, you know, economics 101 at university and you read, you know, two pages out of a thousand page book and you're like, yep, there it is, invisible hand. That's what Adam Smith is saying. It's the same thing as Hobbes, you know. It's they, so true. Like Adam, these like very, very deep thinkers who were expounding on a variety of different subjects, they get distilled into these like... Uh, like super, uh, you know, two-dimensional superheroes. Okay, that's Adam Smith. I think that's the, the yeah, next. Yeah, you put yeah. that very well, William. That 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 it, they become these caricatures. They become these two-dimensional, like cartoony figures. And these are very complex thinkers. And they're these are uh, these are really enormous texts. I mean, Leviathan by Hobbes is not as daunting as The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. But it's still a pretty good size read, and there's a lot going on in Leviathan. If you agree with it or not, and I don't pretend to agree with Hobbes till till the letter, but there's a lot in that book, and he's got a lot of plates spinning, and he is addressing a breathtaking amount of you know topics and issues, and he, yeah, he, these are very complex thinkers. So just to boil them down to this one punchy like little soundbite quote that's not that's not doing these thinkers any justice you know but nevertheless I, these enlightenment thinkers you know were kind of pounding on Hobbes a bit and they ended up redrawing what it means to be human and I, I just find that fascinating because well for two reasons one the how they how they redraw humanity and two they get ignored for like over two centuries after they do this and this is really revolutionary work by Hume and Adam Smith and and, and Rousseau Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, this is really revolutionary stuff, and they just like the history of philosophy. Just said, "Yeah, that's great," and then they just went right back to what they were doing, and they just got ignored. And then I found in my work, and in you know, in teaching these courses on moral philosophy, I started noticing that contemporary twenty-first century scientists primatologists, that is people who study apes, uh, neuroscientists, anthropologists, psychologists, 
in their research and testing have been justifying or um, have, have been have been kind of vindicating these thinkers. And I found that fascinating. I'm like, wait, is the world of 21st century science is now and I it's an it's in just about every book. Every new book that I, I find, you know, uh, there's they're doing really interesting work, interesting research on babies and toddlers at Yale, and by P Paul Bloom and his wife uh, Karen Wynn. And Paul Bloom wrote a book called Just Babies, and he writes about the research his um, his department's doing at Yale. And lo and behold, there's he mentions Hume and Adam Smith. Wow. And they so the fact that like moral philosophy is or moral sensibility or conscience is ingrained. Like people innately kind of sense that, right? That's what they're seeing. That's what they're seeing. And and like uh Franz Duval, who's a very well known uh primatologist, he's been working with chimps and bonobos for forever. Um He's looking at apes and seeing the building blocks of human morality. And then Paul Bloom at Yale is seeing, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. They're seeing, you know, they, they do all these puppet shows. They're kind of like puppet shows, but they're testing. They're looking to see what, what preferences these babies have. I mean, these babies can't even move their arms. I mean, they can't even point, you know, to whatever they. But they, they, they watch the baby's eyes. Like, which puppet does is there a preference? And they're getting very robust data. There, it's it's crystal clear. There's no there's no disputing that the babies have. I mean, I wouldn't say the babies are fully developed moral agents, <laughs> but. They do have the um, they do they do have a they do have a they do show a preference to these puppets who act nicely over puppets that behave badly, and there is there is there is an indication there it it and it, it 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 sort of validates what. You know, Plato even was saying about we have an innate understanding of these things. You know, Plato talked about this over two thousand years ago. That we right, have, and, in the, and that contradicts this kind of Darwinian view, also that you call it the veneer theory. This kind of other moral philosophy. That's that friends of all the veneer theory. Yeah, yeah, about how we're you know civilized on the outside, but we're no good on the inside we're kind of rotten on the inside but civilization religion our parents all these things all these factors society uh it puts a veneer around this rotten core <laughs> and and so we need religion and society and laws etc to uh keep us on the straight and narrow which is patent nonsense i mean david hume was very clear about this, you know, in the mid 
seventeen hundreds. You know, and that but there was, is there is an innate sense for virtue and appreciation of virtue, and the desire of individuals to be virtuous. Maybe not everyone, I suppose, but that is a yes human yeah. trait. I think yes. I mean, the the data, what these scientists, these anthropologists and psychologists, what they're seeing in their research and their testing, it makes it crystal clear. I mean, neuroscientists like Patricia Patricia Churchland, um, she's looking at brain chemistry and neurotransmitters and stuff like that, and she's seeing it too, like. There's, there's, a, there are chemical indicators in the brain that show a preference for, yeah, virtuous, sympathetic behavior, which is no different. I mean, it's a different language. They're writing in a different language than Rousseau and Adam Smith wrote in, but they're saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. They're just using a technical nomenclature but i mean it's the same thing so that's what i found really fascinating so i thought okay you got the enlightenment you got 21st century scientific you know essentially they're proving these guys right i mean these enlightenment thinkers um I mean, I, I thought that's a political that that's a there's a there's a political story to, to be told there. That's right, too. I mean, it is interesting. Like they kind of out of the political discussions, all of those kind of sentiments are gone. The other party is the unempathetic party, or is not seeing this right, or whatever. It's kind mm -hmm. of interesting, but both parties kind of focus on their moral elements like they think they're the they're in that party because they're morally right would you agree with that like that's why they're republicans or, or democrats because they're on the moral right side yeah well i think that that, that kind of polarizes the conversation you know i mean yeah i, th I think that polarity leads to trouble Right. And you talk about kind of the religion, right? The public religions and things like that. But the, actually, like you, your findings in at least the Middle East was that it wasn't about religion. It was about property and territory and things like that. But also that religion became a scapegoat for that, for other things, right? So no, people, people love to blame religion for, you know, all this bloodshed and savagery in the world. It's usually about power. It's about power, and it's about politics. It's not about, you know... I mean, yes, there is instability in the Middle East. That's hardly a controversial statement. Um, but it's not Islam's fault. I've never been... I mean, when I've spent time in the Middle East, in the Arab world... I've never been treated better. The hospitality in the Arab world is astounding. I mean, if Arab culture was rotten to the core and if Islam was a corrupting force, then why was I treated so well? An American, no less. Why was I why am I routinely treated so well? 
well. Well, I've heard that from I, others too, anecdotally. Yeah, it's an anecdotal. But if yeah, but if, but if Islam, if, if Islam was this toxic, poisonous ideology, then I wouldn't be treated so well in the Arab world. You know, I would have been treated with hostility. But I, but I wasn't. I never, I'd never been treated poorly in the Arab world. They bend over backwards to, you know, show you hospitality and invite you into their home and serve the best food they've got. And, you know, it's again and again and again and again. I mean, like, that's that's a pattern, <laughs> you know. It, 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 it totally... It totally turns upside down the the assertions that you know Islam is the problem in the Middle East. The problem in the middle, the problems in the Middle East uh, have have more often been external. I mean, it's Western Europe intervening in their politics, and it's the United States intervening in their politics. You know, uh, right before the 2000, I think it was 2004 elections here in the here in the United States, um, Osama bin Laden addressed the American people. He got ignored, but he had my full attention. Uh, he said, "On 9/11, we could have bombed anybody. We could have bombed, you know, Sweden." I think he said Sweden. Um, we could have bombed anybody, but we didn't. We bombed you. We bombed you. And he said, just as you destroy our security, we will destroy your security. Okay, he's talking about security. Security is not a religious concept. Right. But that's a secular concept. And that's what he said. Have you ever heard of Rene Girard? Like a philosopher, he's a moral. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that name. Yeah, but he did a lot of work on scapegoating. He says scapegoating is a is a crucial function of societies of yeah. finding a scapegoat or being you know to allay blame on something and then solve the scapegoat problem. So they have this, and just all kinds of societies have this scapegoating function. So in our modern kind of faith, you know, God is dead society, the end of faith. Yeah. The scapegoat is now for these scientists is religion or whatever they believe religion is, right? I think it's a way of changing the subject. I really do. It's a red herring. Because if you talk about, you know, the problems, in the, just to use the Middle East as an example, if you talk about if you talk about religion, if you blame religion for the problems in the Middle East, then you're changing the subject and you're doing U.S. foreign policy and the State Department a tremendous service. You know, I think there's a racist component to this. Um, I, I've noticed a mechanism. So there's a, I've seen, there's a, an inclination to impugn or insult the honor of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, that serves the function of 
illustrating that Islam is at its core rotten. And if Islam is at its core rotten, then Arab culture must also be rotten at its core. And if Arab culture is rotten at its core, then the problems in the Middle East are internal. And so our contributions are are morally negligible. Well, you don't need to be, you know, a detective to figure out what's going on there. You know. No, you don't. Oh. But it is remarkable. Like you mentioned two known kind of uh, public intellectuals, Hitchens and Harris, who were gung-ho yeah. for like uh, imperial nation destroying in, in Middle East. Really, it is remarkable. Yeah, they know that about yeah. Hitchens and Sam Harris. They all they all wrote books. Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett. You know, these are the self-styled uh, the four horsemen. <laughs> and so there's a YouTube video you can watch if you choose to do so, uh, where they sit around and congratulate themselves for being really smart, and they talk about how. You know, religion turns us into imbeciles and, you know, so on and so forth. But then they turn around. They don't notice this. And, you know, you'd think, you'd think four guys who are that smart would notice that there's a religious character in their thinking because they're, they're, they're very worshipful of the State Department and U.S. power, U.S. state power. And you know, destroying Iraq from 30,000 feet. Uh, there's a religious, there's a... Um, dogmatic. Would you agree that they're dogmatic about their stuff? Like, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to use the word evangelical. <laughs> Interesting. They're, they're evangelical about their, about their, you know, they gush and they swoon about U.S. state power. It's all over. Sam Harris's book is is... Uh, unique um, in that it's so very terrible. Um, I don't even I don't even know how it got published. I mean, he's he's he says something wrong on every page, just about every page, and a lot of it's racist. Uh, you know, he he justifies you know. He, uh, he justifies unspeakable violence meted out to the Arab people, you know, again, from 30,000 feet. And he's okay with it. He's perfectly fine with that, you know. They're violent. They're uncivilized. So we need to speak their language. Wow. I mean, it's, it's really... That book is... It's the end of faith, right? Something, yeah, something. That book is something to behold. <laughs> so, 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 so I was just, just on social media, and his author. statement about, like, uh, finding dead bodies in Hunter Biden's, like, uh, basement was really an incredible statement. I don't know if you saw that, but... No. Like, he I, just, I yeah. Glenn, like, a noted journalist, Glenn Greenwald, said it was one of the most important things he had seen in, in 2022, because... Glenn, such, Greenwald, I, Glenn Greenwald was talking about dead bodies? No, Sam Harris wasn't. 
there's a there's kind of a clip that's being you know bouncing around the internet of, of Sam Harris talking to two interviewers and he says something like I don't care if Hunter Biden was found with dead bot dead young girls bodies in his basement because Trump was uh, Trump had this university so he didn't Trump was such an amoral uh, monster that they could he could have you know people should just overlook any of Hunter Biden's oh, I moral see. shortcomings. Yeah, I see, I see. Um, so it was it was very interesting, but I was I, he did not put him in a good light, and I was, I was like, oh, this guy should he should read some moral philosophy. <laughs> he should <laughs> he should he should, he should put down his science books and read some. Uh, should read some, some Hume, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or yeah. So so Adam so Adam Smith so Glenn Greenwald weighed in on this. Yes, he said it was the most important, one of the most. I'll have to go back and double check. I think he said it was the most important video he saw in 2022 of Sam Harris saying this because it was like an exposure of this kind of unhinged moral outlook where yeah, I'm gonna, I'm you could justify this this super amorality, like calling Hunter a serial killer yeah, in opposed to this guy, Trump, who's uh, kind of ridiculous. I mean, I'm going to have to find that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. Maybe Glenn, I can find it now. Greenwald does typically very good work. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and 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 Sam Harris uh, typically doesn't. Yeah, that I didn't know that. See, I didn't know those that uh, that stuff. I didn't know all that. So. No, his his book is uh, a historian at uh, he's at Michigan, I think. Uh, Juan Cole, who does fantastic work uh has for a long time he did a two-part essay on his blog informed comment and he just destroys sam harris's book i mean i go i go light i just touch on it but juan cole does a deep dive and he really takes that book apart <laughs> okay, cool. can we let's see if I can find this? I have to take my earbud out, but let me see if I can play this. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to see. Okay, let's see if I can yeah. find this clip of him talking. This is a comment on the clip, but this is it. This is this was what Glenn Greenwell called super important at the 11th hour when it's when who knows how this election is going to go, who, know, who knows what the capacity for you know disinformation at the last minute to to tip the balance is, then what do you do with the Hunter Biden laptop story when we already know, we, we know how this played out in 2016 with the Hillary Clinton email, you know, press conference where, where Comey in, 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 a, in an abundance of scrupulosity felt like he had to come before the cameras, I think 10 days out from the election and say, you know, we've, we're gonna open up this, this investigation again. Okay, scrupulosity that's right. yes that's right. okay here we go really could have had had the listen i don't care what's in hunter biden's life. i mean hunter biden at that point hunter biden literally could have had had the corpses of children in his basement i would not have cared right it's like it's, there's nothing first of all it's hunter biden right it's not it's like it's not joe biden but even if joe like even the, whatever scope of joe biden's corruption is like if you if we could just go down that rabbit hole endlessly and and understand that he's getting kickbacks from Hunter Biden's deals in Ukraine or wherever else, right? 
or China, it is infinitesimal compared to the corruption we know Trump is involved in. Yes, that's right. He really said that he wouldn't care if Hunter Biden was keeping the corpse. Say it's still completely unfair to not have looked at the laptop in a timely way and to have shut down the, you know, the New York Post's Twitter account. Like that, that's a, just a conspiracy. That's a left wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump. Absolutely. It was absolutely right. But I think it was warranted. Yeah, man. The looks on that interviewer's faces are great. They're kind of just looking at him like, what's he talking about? It's too much. But that uh, that was interesting for me. Like, that's yeah. yeah. Sam Harris has a really unsettling. I don't know what what's the word relationship, not relationship, but he treats with casual. With a casual air, the this dead children thing that comes up I mean, in his book. I mean, if you look at if you look at what he says in End of Faith, I don't think it bothers him that you know the United States went to Iraq and, and butchered millions of people. And, and and yeah, if you look at the if you look at the if you look at the data, the what are called extra deaths. So in a given country, X number of people are just going to die from old age or illness or whatever. There's a, we know that number, okay? So in Iraq, during the years of American occupation, the extra deaths were like around half a million. So we killed God knows how many Iraqi children. And... Sam Harris is just okie dokie with that, and that now again he's saying it. So he's that's really unsettling. <laughs> he's he's got a really weird thing with the uh, dead children. That is weird, and maybe that's I'll leave that weird. between him and his therapist. They you know. all of these guys should go. Whether it's Harris Dawkins, they should go back and read. Some of these other moral philosophers, because some of their moral judgments are not good. I think Dawkins is like hanging out on Epstein's plane. Even that some other guy that you mentioned in your book is Steven Pinker was pictured with Dawkins. Like these guys make some pretty questionable moral choices. In their friendship. Was Dawkins really hanging around him? Yeah, you ever seen Dawkins and Pinker together? No, not Pinker. Um, oh, Epstein? Yeah, Jer yeah. We're on his plane. Yeah. Was he really? Yeah, I'll show you. I stuff. do not. I did not know that. Yeah, that's 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 about as creepy as it gets. Yeah, I think there there was also associated with. I can't think of anything creepy. Um, this kind of next thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, this is bad news. You ready? Yeah. What's I'm this? Gonna, I'm going to show you this. Okay. So there's Pinker with Epstein and Krauss. Good. See that? And these these yeah. are these two guys together. So this is the TED conference where uh, I think this is supposedly on Monterey. They, there was like some group concurrent, and a lot of these guys from I think Musk went once. Guys from Google. Uh, yeah. Also, um, Bezos are, were hanging around this TED conference where Epstein was around, but Epstein was associated with a lot. Of, so that's Dawkins and Pinker. 
that's Epstein and the just like the head of uh, Mirvolt, who was yeah involved in uh, Microsoft. So, a little I unnerving. Bit Pinker, of, uh, I think Pinker does fairly good work. I mean, I couldn't say I again agree with him to the letter, but so there's Pinker, Bezos, Dawkins. I don't think... These ideas are very important to understand because these people are around each other, man. They're hanging out, associating with each other. Yeah, sure. Well, they're all, world so, views. They're all celebrity intellectuals, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's that's so like, exactly. It's, 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 this is the Bronkman guy. This guy, these two are totally associated with Epstein, but this guy right here is the same guy right here with Pinker. Yeah, it's yeah. a little small little. Yeah, Pinker, I don't know. I think he's better when he's talking about linguistics and stuff. I don't know. His political analysis, he's... He thinks he's really progressive, and he's not. He's what I would call an N an NPR liberal or a New York Times liberal. That's like, that's his, that's the, that's his left edge. But if you look at the public opinion polls, see, there I go again. If you look at the public opinion polls, um, he's well right of center. Interesting. But he presents himself as being this progressive voice of reason, and he really isn't. I don't even know if he's aware of that. I don't, I don't think he is aware of that. Um, yeah, I think you need to bear in mind where the center is. Because he's... He's described as that, as being, oh, he's really progressive. He's quote unquote liberal and so on and so forth. Um, but he's, he's really not. He's well right of center. Interesting. Yeah. I found it interesting too. Like Stephen Hates kind of views the five values and how people organize their moral values. Yeah. I think it was yeah. kind of breaking that down. I thought it was interesting instead, of like, because you could then see a hierarchy of values, right? Well, Stephen Stephen Height, uh, or um, Height, he uh, Jonathan Height, sorry, Jonathan Height, yeah, yeah, uh, Jonathan Height is kind of a modern update on Hume, really. Hmm. I mean, that's the whole point of the part, the point of the departure of his book, The Righteous Mind. Um, Height, uh. He talks about humor quite a bit, and he's basically that's his, you know, the, that's his springboard is Hume's approach to those things, and that he is finessing and updating Hume. Interesting. Really? Yeah, that's where he's coming from. Yeah, I mentioned height in the book as well. Certainly do. You know, I thought that was interesting about how people can see their moral. People should take that test. What was the test that Hyde had? Oh, the moral foundations test. Moral yeah, foundations. that's it's. I have the students do it in in one of my classes. We do it every semester. Uh, what, what what's the outcome? What did the students realize, and what do you realize? Looking, I mean, do you see their results? And, I and I say them? I tell them they don't have to show me their results. Um, it's all voluntary if they want to share. Most of them do. Um, and then I ask them, are you surprised with where you landed, you know, being more progressive or being more quote unquote conservative? 
Um, and most of them are unsurprised hmm. at where they ended up with their with their with because it generates as like a like a graph, you know, and it shows you okay, here's where you are, here's where you know, I mean, probably a hundred thousand people or more have taken that test, you know. No, it really is interesting. So it is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a, the, the students have fun with it. Yeah, I, I put my results. I mean, my results are in the book, but I put the results up on a, up on a screen for all the students to see. I'm like, okay, that's where I am. So compare your results to where I ended up. You know, and it's, it's kind of fun. You know. Well, Gregory, we are kind of almost at the hour mark. Uh, there's a lot more in this book. We haven't kind of talked about the culture, how we became us, and uh, some of these other other topics that you have in there. But what would you like to leave? Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? Um, I think I think if I wanted to kind of reinforce or emphasize anything, would be that the book is about what we have in common and that Americans are in far greater agreement than Americans realize and that we have to talk to one another. That is the way forward. I know people dread talking about politics, but if we do it better, we will have better politics, but that's up to us. If you're sitting around waiting for Washington, D.C. to, you know, become enlightened and start doing you favors, uh, you're going to be waiting to forever. It's up to us. This is a democracy. And power doesn't do people favors. Power serves itself. So we have to talk to one another. I just yeah, want to... I just want to reinforce that point for your for your listeners and your viewers. You know, I think that's the most important part of the book. And where's the best place for people to get the book? Can they get it at Amazon and your website? Is that right? Yeah, I could. They could, they can find it on Amazon. I've got a link on my website, GregoryHarms.com. Um, I'm on social media. I'm not hard to find. Um, and people, if they want to reach out to you, the best place is through your website. Gregory Harms, all one word. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a contact form, and my email address is on the contact page. Yeah, just send me an email and tell me what's on your mind. You know? Yeah. Right on. And so that is a great talk. Thanks a lot for sharing all that knowledge. Really interesting book. I enjoyed reading through it. No, thank the you. Title, yeah, the title of the book, again, is No Politics, No Religion, How America's Code of Conduct Conceals Our Unity. And the author, again, is Gregory Harms, A-J-R-M-S. Just published November 2022. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, William. All right, stay there. Stay there.